Welcome to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, the first podcast to focus on the political side of pharmacy. Here's your host, Eric Geyer. Welcome, Political Pharmacist Podcast listeners. I'm your host, Eric Geyer, and with me today I have Dr. Elizabeth Lindquist. She's an oncology pharmacist at UW Health Regional Cancer Center in Rockville, Illinois, co-founder at the Illinois Prescription Drug Repository Coalition, and graduate of the University of Illinois at Chicago. Welcome to the podcast, Elizabeth. Thanks for inviting me. I'm glad to be here. The pleasure's all mine because you did something that's kind of cool that a lot of pharmacists, I think, can kind of help lead the way with on this, and that was starting the Illinois Prescription Drug Repository Coalition. Can you explain kind of what that is and what motivated you to found it? Sure. Well, I think everybody in pharmacy, whatever kind of pharmacy you're in, um, has had situations where um, you've gotten questions from patients about what they can do with unused prescription medication. In most states, the only option, and in, in Illinois up until we passed this law, the only option is, is to dispose of it. They, there were no options to donate unused prescription medication to other patients. And that always bothered me, especially being an oncology pharmacist. We have a lot of drug products that are safely blister-packed, manufacturer blister-packed cards. And if they're unexpired, we know they're not tampered with, and it seems like a total waste to dispose of them instead of donating them to patients in need because they're super expensive. So, you know, I see that. I've had patients ask me about that. And when I found out that there are laws in certain states allowing patients to donate unused, unexpired medication that is in tamper-evident packaging, sealed tamper-evident packaging, I thought, why can't we do that in Illinois? And so I started talking to friends and um, we decided to put together a coalition to work on getting that kind of a law passed in Illinois. And it took us two and a half years, but we did succeed. Wow. It took you two and a half years to get what most people probably call a common sense law passed. What were like, some of the hurdles you faced with that? Well, you know what you say, two and a half years is actually pretty good. And that, the two and a half years that, that I was involved was after another eight years almost, that other folks were working on this legislation. Wow. And, and so it, it was actually a decade in the making. I just came in at the tail end of it when the whole effort had kind of died off because the opposition that we faced in Illinois was really strong and really uncommon. Our <laughs> Trial Lawyers Association, the Illinois Trial Lawyers Association, which is a very powerful lobby in the state of Illinois, was adamantly opposed to allowing any type of drug repository legislation to go through. And that's just because they didn't really have a good reason. They just didn't want to provide any additional immunity protection for any healthcare professionals. And unless you provide some type of immunity protection in relation to the whole drug donation process, you're not going to get healthcare professionals um, wanting to be involved in it. Right. So the immunity protection is critical, just basically involved, um, you know, improvements to Good Samaritan type immunity protection language that is already in a variety of state statutes in Illinois. And they were adamantly opposed to that. So every single legislator who had tried to introduce this legislation in previous General Assembly sessions 
they filed the bill. They went to the, you know, the trial lawyers found out that the bill had been filed and they called up that legislator and told them that this bill was not going to get through, that they would make sure that this bill did not get through. And, and that was our first um, experience. You know, we had a we had a legislator who had not been involved in this type of legislation before. We asked him to introduce the bill. He got a call from the lobbyist for the Troy Lawyers Association telling him he was going to block the bill. And he called us up and said, I'm, I'm not going to have anything to do with this anymore. <laughs> and we actually went through, I think, three, two or three chief co-sponsors for the legislation before we found one who was willing and able to go to really go to bat with the trial lawyers association um in support of this and that was a really key piece <laughs> that's crazy that you know when you think of like law of unintended consequences or like interested parties i would have never thought the trial lawyers were the ones who were going to you know jump down your throat on this one because i mean they're lawyers like you know it just doesn't it's you think healthcare i would think pharma maybe you know big pharmacy chains stuff like that would be the ones who would hop in but not trial lawyers like that just seems like out there but i guess when you explain it it makes sense so that's yeah. a, that's an interesting and, one and in from what i know about legis from folks who have been involved in legislation passing legislation like this in different states it, we don't know that this of this happening in any other state other than <laughs> Illinois. I mean, even in states that are like kind of similar to Illinois, you know, like New York, the trial lawyers weren't involved in blocking this legislation at all in New York. Now, New York doesn't have a functional program. They they basically are were like a lot of states and passed a law, and then the um, legislation itself got stuck in rules, and um, and nothing's really happening with drug reuse and recycling in New York, but. Yeah, it was really, really, really odd. But politics in Illinois is, you know, has been traditionally known as, as u unique in a lot of ways. And there are certain lobbies that just have, you know, veto power over this stuff. And unfortunately, we had the one that does. But where there's a will, there's a way. And where <laughs> there are really um, knowledgeable, strategic um, general assembly members that are willing to, I mean, you know, basically the the rep that we had, Representative Will Gazzardi, he was very knowledgeable about how to move legislation strategically and how to negotiate with opposing parties. And, and he basically told us what our job was, was to get a very broad, diverse coalition of co-sponsors for the bill. And then that would give him something to work with when he was negotiating with the trial lawyers. So um, we ended up getting a very large, very broad uh, group of co-sponsors. We had Republicans and Democrats. Um, the state of Illinois is, you know, the Democrats have a supermajority, so it was critical that we get Democratic co-sponsors from every caucus within the Democratic Party, and we did that. We had to work really hard to get a really strong group of co-sponsors, and then once the trial lawyers saw that and they started, you know, kind of discussing things with our chief uh, co-sponsor, then once once their opposition fell, and this is a guy, our chief sponsor is somebody who is usually always on the same side as the trial lawyers. He's very, he's a strong progressive, and you know he wants to protect people's right to sue large entities, whatever they are, or powerful entities, rich entities. And so they're usually on the same side. So when this guy went to them and said, "This is really important to me, and I've got a really strong grassroots 
group who's building a um, large group of co-sponsors, he was able to move them to neutral. And as soon as they moved to neutral, everything else just fell into place. And the bill ended up passing unanimously in both houses and, um, and then was signed by the governor. That's awesome. So, you know, one thing that I always think of when I hear about this program, I know other states have it. How exactly does it work? Like, does somebody just walk into a pharmacy, say, hey, I want to donate these, and they put them to the side? Are the pharmacies able to charge a dispensing or handling fee for them at all? Like, how all does this actually, like, this program work? So... In Illinois, our bill was there because, you know, like pharmacy legislation in every state, there's yeah. it's it's different. So there is a variety of ways that this works in different states. Our bill was written in such a way that it would be very versatile and that any pharmacy or physician or health clinic would be able to participate with a very low, I mean, almost no barrier to entry. Oh, wow. um, we, there's no registration required. There's base, it's very accurately and specifically delineated in the bill what pharmacists and providers need to do to participate. So one of the things that we are, we don't even have to wait for rules to get written by any, any entity within the state of Illinois. We can just automatically start doing this on January 1st because of the way we, how specifically we wrote the bill. And so basically it just, the, it just says that any Pharmacist, clinic, or physician can accept donated prescription med- prescription or over-the-counter medication as long from any individual, um, including members of the general public. And they, as long as the medication is in sealed, tamper-evident packaging and is unexpired. And mm-hmm. then, once it's donated, it has to be inspected by the pharmacy or the, who are, you know whatever healthcare professional is taking it in. And then it can be redispensed to patients in need. And the bill specifically states that priority must be given to patients who are on, um, you know, publicly funded healthcare programs or, or indigent patients, uninsured patients. But it doesn't even say that it has to be those patients. Hmm. And then we can just, you, all you can charge is a low uniform handling fee that doesn't um, have anything to do with the price of the, or the cost of the medication. So you can charge, you know, a dollar, three dollars, whatever, but it has to be a consistent price and it has to be low and just to cover your overhead. Yeah. Um, and then the law specifically details what uh, records you have to keep and, and, and it, it details how uh, donated medication can be transferred between pharmacies and clinics. So it really allows a lot of leeway in the program, which is really important with a with a program like ours because it's not funded by the state at all. Yeah. Um, Iowa's prescription, Iowa's the oldest program and very highly utilized, very, very effective. Um, but their program is funded by the state and, our, and ours is not at all. We wouldn't have gotten it passed if we'd asked for that. Yes. Asking for more money to fund something is always a, uh, a nice little hard thing you have to try and get through, whereas if you don't have to fund it, that's amazing. Does this include medications that are possibly specialty, like HIV, stuff like that, or even like insulin that has to be like refrigeration, uh, refrigerated and kept in like certain conditions? It does, get, it does include all oral specialty medications. Um, basically everything, the only real specific carve out is, you know, we're obviously not getting involved in donating controlled substances. Right. And all the immunomodulator, um, REMS cancer drugs, basically lenalidomide, pomalidomide, and thalidomide, 
we excluded uh, based on the request of a drug manufacturer. Um, and refrigerated drugs are allowed if the packaging contains a method recognized by USP to detect improper temperature excursions. So that doesn't include much. Um, yeah. I don't know if that, you know, your average vial of insulin does not have a temperature you know, anything, anything in the packaging to detect temperature excursions. But that's that the refrigerated drugs and obviously insulin being so important. Um, there's been a lot of discussion about it. Um, but the what the bill says is that the packaging has to contain a method recognized by USP to detect that's, temperature excursions. I think that's fair because we all know that, you know, you could, some people might let their insulin just sit at room temperature for who knows my days, which a lot of times it can still be good, but you don't know that then. So how do you know how to tell a person you're going to give it to, right? And things like that. So right. there's a lot of murkiness that really dives into that. So I think that it is. Sense. I'm really not comfortable with, you know, refrigerator drugs at this point. I do think, though, that the way the bill was written, it would allow for some some type of temperature detecting device that what it doesn't say that 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 has to be in the original packaging right so if you were sent something by a mail order pharmacy um and it had a temperature monitoring device in it which they don't from what i have been told Most um of yeah. that might that might fly um but yeah it's <laughs> it's kind of a it's been a point of a lot of discussion <laughs> in, uh, in within the um Within the coalition, it's endless discussion, actually, because it's so important, you know? you know. That might be one thing, too, that eventually when you have a bill like this, you can reach out and say, hey, look, we're trying to help. And maybe the pharmacy manufacturers could be like, yeah, you know, it'll cost us like a nickel or whatever those little tiny, you know, things that have the temperature sensor on there to put on there. And, you know, again, it might hurt their bottom line. But if they want to really get some good rapport, since we all know pharma doesn't have the best uh, rapport with the public right now, that something like that could go a long way and to help helping them with the PR than helping people get their medications and ultimately driving overall costs down, which is kind of the point of this. So, And, and you know, there, there's something else that a pharma could do or the FDA could do that would really help um, drug donation and reuse uh, programs all across the country is if you, if they required any prescription medication that was over a certain price point to be in blister pack packaging, unit right. dose packaging. You know, I mean, there's one of the most common uh, medications that oral chemo drugs is Zolota or capecitabine. Um, that's packaged in bottles. Um, I mean, now it's generic, but I would love to see that blister pack. That's actually not a good example of an expensive medication. But when uh, one of the things that I kept reflecting on throughout this process of trying to get this bill passed is Several years ago, my husband was treated for hepatitis C, and he was on Harvoni. And at that time, Harvoni was the, the most expensive oral medication. The, the yeah. cash price for one capsule was $1,000. And he would get a bottle of 28 capsules, and as soon as that bottle was opened, it was useless. And that, that's just ridiculous because... I mean, if he had if he wasn't responding to that and he had 14 pills left or whatever, he wouldn't have been able to donate those to anybody even with this legislation in place. So it really m makes sense to me if if a dr if big pharma wants to say that these drugs really are that valuable, um, they should package them in such a way that they could be safely donated to other patients if um, the, the you know the patients the original patient did not need them. Yeah. Um, so. 
and like you said, these are expensive medications, and the packaging costs like literally pennies <laughs> for each one. Exactly. Yeah, it might right. raise your cost like five cents for like a on a bottle that is you know twenty eight thousand dollars. In the example you used, no one's going to notice the five cents. Like, just throw it in there. Right. Exactly. And. And there, you know, there's the environmental impact, and it has was when when I've talked about this to people, they're like, well, that packaging would be, you know, more waste in packaging. But the environmental impact of having to dispose and incinerate that unused medication and then remake that medication then for someone else, yeah, it, the environmental it would still save from an environmental perspective. Yeah, for sure. And you're saving spending, environmental, and you're getting more people access to medications. So it's like a triple win. The only people who, again, might be losing are the people who are making money off of just mass getting medications out to the public or people who are, you know, burning the medications or getting rid of it in whatever ways they need to, you know, incinerate it. So I think that's right. a pretty niche when you look at the global picture here. Right, right. There's a statistic that is kind of escaping me at the moment. So I'm. Um... <laughs> That's all right. Uh, <laughs> redistributing one pound of medicine can prevent 30,000 pounds of waste from the production of new medicine. Holy crap. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah. That's a really startling figure. And then, you know, when you think about the fact that a lot of medication is not incinerated um, yeah. and the fact that 70% of our waterway, the waterways that are used for drinking water have traces of pharmaceuticals. And then even if they are, even if the medications are properly incinerated, you know, medical waste incinerators are America's third largest source of dioxins. Um, and so different pollutants still come out into the environment yeah. when medications are properly disposed of. And, and I know this might be a smaller thing, but if you can sh shave a little bit more space on like a shipping container uh, that's coming across the seas and fill it with something else safely, obviously, look at the bottlenecks we have now. Maybe you get, you know, two more containers on a ship, which is a huge difference when you're backed up and have backlogs all across the world with shipping and then never mind the amount of weight and extra gas that's be used and things like that too, which is like all downstream effects that could exactly. be saved. Yes, exactly. So yeah, I, I'm a huge fan exactly. of this. A huge fan of this. When we're looking at things like this though, how many people or how many pharmacies have you seen and clinics, whatever you want to count, really step up and say, we're going to do this once the program launches? Do you have a number? I, I don't. And if it had, was any other time, you know, if it was, if it was two years ago and we were looking at, um, you know, this program going into effect in January, I think that there would be all sorts of interest. But with every aspect of healthcare and every type of healthcare professional being so stressed and so overworked, yeah. um, so overextended right now, it really is tampering interest in getting started um, right away with these programs just because everyone like even if it, it's not going to cost you any more money it's still going to cost you a little bit of staff time yeah so you know even at my own institution i am in the middle of um, writing a business plan to start drug donation and reuse in on january 1st but my plan starts with there's it's a phased in um approach and it starts with just my oncology clinic. And what I am presenting to my supervisor is that I will be the only one who will need to um, do this extra work that is going to be required to put this thing together. Because 
you know, my boss is super excited about it, but he's got nobody to actually do the work. So I'm, you know, putting together this phased in um, business plan that uh, basically involves me doing the extra work in the first phase. And then hopefully, you know, mid-year, you know, maybe by the middle of the year next year, we could expand it to our, um, you know, our whole health system and all of our clinics. Yeah. Um, So Because it will require a little extra, um, at least an extra technician for our, because we already have a retail pharmacy in our hospital. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So I think this is an awesome thing. And it sounds like obviously you've done your homework because you know other states that have it. You said Iowa has a state funded one that seems to be working pretty well. What other states out there have some sort of program like that? So if if listeners are in that state, they can maybe look it up that you know of. So now that Illinois has um, our bill, uh, we have 40 states and Guam and Washington, D.C., that have legislation allowing prescription drug repository programs. But we only have 27 states and Washington, D.C. that have operational programs. So, and the, the program, the, our situation, or the, the legislation that we passed in Illinois um, is probably most similar to what they have in Georgia. Um, okay. And and we've worked really closely with a um, an organization called Serum, um, which uh, ha- has a uh, charitable a mail order charitable pharmacy in in Georgia, and and they do a lot of accepting donations of long term care pharmacy uh, medication, which is you know I kind of think about this from the perspective of prescriptions that patients end up with at home, whether it's an, an, that are eligible for donation, whether it's like a topical cream or an inhaler or some type of medication that oral drug that's packaged in blister pack, tamper evident packaging. Um, but there is a whole other like pool of medication that's available for donation that comes back to long-term care pharmacies that is now being incinerated. And so Serum is in the business of repackaging that and dispensing it to patients in need, and they do that out of Georgia. So there, the bill that is in Georgia is kind of like ours, but there are there are a variety of other programs too. Even you know, even in Ohio, um, you do have a well, you have a operational program for cancer drugs only. Yeah. So yeah, there there are various. Yeah, so it's 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 a really good call to listeners that this is kind of hodgepodge throughout the U.S. and this isn't exactly mm-hmm. the clearest thing. And getting some more pharmacist involvement with this, although might probably hurt some of our profitabilities. To be honest, it's probably the right thing to do. That I think every pharmacist would also back just because we did take an oath to take care of patients, and this also helps keep costs down. So it's kind of right in our wheelhouse since we are the experts and. Like you said, when it comes to temperature control, we know that stuff better than anybody else so we can step in and make sure that things are done properly so people get a safe and effective medication, even if it is free. Like that is key here. It's supposed to be safe and effective, right? So I mm-hmm. think that that's a good right, call right. out for you that, you know, we need a little more involvement in each state from pharmacists. Now, I don't know who in each state we could call on, but I think it is a good call out there. And for listeners, I will include the various like laws that I have access to and things like that 
and some links to where you can find them, especially the Illinois program that uh, Dr. Lindquist helped co-found in the show notes. So there's going to be a bunch of references down there that you can link and look up stuff and maybe even take some of the verbiage to, you know, your local state rep or state senator to try and get something like this passed. Or, hey, if you have a good federal contact, that might be another good place to even reach out that way. I don't know, have a whole lot there, but that might be something you can start with that. So, uh, hey, with that, though, I can't let you go before I ask two. There's two questions I ask everybody who comes on the podcast. So I think you being a pharmacist who works in a little different field that usually isn't on this podcast might have some interesting takes on. So if you could change one thing in pharmacy that is not a law, what would it be and why? I, I, do, I do think that if, if I could change one thing in pharmacy, it would be to eliminate mail order pharmacy. Um, and just I, as, as I've been working through um, uh, working on getting this legislation passed in Illinois, um, one of the things that I've gotten, um, one of the sources of information that I've, I've heard about, you know, uh, over and over again is this whole issue of mail order waste. And um, we're anticipating taking in a whole lot of medication from mail order pharmacies that the patient never needed to begin with. I mean, there's yeah. been a lot of research done on mail order waste. And, and so since prescription drug waste and, um, you know, is it, it since, you know, the wasting of prescription medications is, is a big issue with me and the coupled with the fact that, you know, mail order is so impersonal and you never see patients. Um, I would just say that that would be the one thing that I would change. Yeah, I think there's a lot of people who aren't aren't the happiest with mail order pharmacy. Although I do know a lot of people who also work in it, so I think it is a good uh, a good discussion point here. Uh, if you could change or make or remove one law in or around pharmacy, what would it be and why? This is another thing. The one thing that I would change um, is that that doesn't personally affect me where I practice at all. But from what I've heard, um, remote verification is a thing, and um, and uh, the other thing is um, limits on the number of prescriptions that, and now vaccinations that pharmacists are required to uh, fill in an hour. Um, both of those things, as somebody who worked in retail pharmacy years ago and doesn't anymore, those are the two things that would scare me the most heading back into retail is um, an employer telling me I had to verify something remotely or on an iPad um, and this, uh, the, the quotas on the number of vaccinations and prescriptions that you have to do in an hour, I think it's gotten really kind of scary, dangerous in that regard. And, um, laws limiting that kind of thing would be the things that I would change. Yeah. And that's huge because who even knows with some of these that you even the proper offer to councils being made. And we can tell you for certain based on numerous studies that we need, like our involvement saves money. So we need more time to counsel and it just is yep. not happening when you keep seeing more and more metrics being pushed onto pharmacists of crank more, do more, do this. Now let's go mm -hmm. text to do it. Yeah. Cause a technician, you know, they're, some of them are great, but they should not be the ones counseling people on medication. So it's scary. And, and what I always thought when I, back when I did work in retail is any prescription error that results in harm to a patient is just a, a money calculation to, to the corporation that's employing you. I mean, they're not going to be laying awake at night, you know, for the rest of their lives fretting about having, you know, caused somebody, you know, death or injury from a prescription drug error. We yeah. care about the patients that we serve. It's not, we're not just looking at it as a actuarial um, calculation. And 
so yeah, it's it's retail pharmacy seems very scary to me these days. <laughs> that yeah. that yeah. I've seen a few times when I worked in some of the bigger chains where when there's an error that goes out, it's kind of like, oh, well, that's part of business. And you're like, no, like there needs to be an analysis. Like, why did it happen? Because we need yes. to stop that. And if yep. some, if a pharmacist start makes, starts making a bunch, there's not even a thought of like, are they stressed out? Are they burned out? Are they overworked? Was Are they short-staffed? It's more of like, oh, it's on them. They should have double-checked and done better. You're like, maybe they did. Maybe it's just, you know, mm-hmm. they hit their limit and – there was other factors that we didn't look at with this. So I I agree with that wholeheartedly. So, Hey, thanks for coming on the podcast. Dr. Lindquist, where can people find you and the repository program if they want to reach out? Well, our website is ilrxdrugrepository.org. Okay. That'll be in the show notes listeners. (laughs) And what about, what about uh, you? Me personally, I'm, uh, I'm, you know, like, are you talking about like my Twitter handle or something? Or like LinkedIn or, or whatever. Like, oh, you know, I am like not on LinkedIn. Okay, well then, yeah, whatever I, way people reach out. I am not on LinkedIn. All you right. know, my, my, my Twitter handle is at EA Lindquist. Because I'm also an elected official, I also have a uh, personal email that's elizabeth at elizabethlindquist.com. That's right, too. <laughs> that, I... comes, that comes from my being a, um, a township trustee. Yeah. We didn't mention that in the intro listeners. So that is a kind of a little Easter egg if you made it this far in the podcast episode. But again, we try and get people who are pharmacy and political. It's just this one. Dr. Lindquist kind of has two with this one. So it works well. (laughs) I do. I do. Hey, thanks for coming on the podcast and listeners. As always, if you can share this, I think this is a good one to share because hopefully we can do something effective change or motivate somebody to affect change with this. But thanks for listening to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, your prescription for pharmacy and politics.